Amen. Thank you, Alan. Alan and I have known each other for a number of years and I've had the privilege of being at events or like weddings where he's emceed. So thank you, Alan, for stepping up and helping welcome us. So yes, it's very good to see you and see some new people, uh, some, some guests visiting. I'm going to start with telling you a little bit about the newcomers camp that we had only one week ago. I've got a couple slides to show you. It was only one week ago. I was saying to a friend, it felt like more, but I don't know. It was a great week. Are there any of those pictures loaded up on the slides? There we go. All right. This was one of the fun things we did at Pioneer Pacific on Thetis Island. We had a camp where we had about 125 newcomers to Canada join another about 100 or so volunteers, and we had such a good time. So this floating playground you see is called the Wibbit. The Wibbit was a hit for the whole week. Uh, in order to go on the Wibbit, people who had never swam in their life had to learn about life jackets and getting in the cold ocean. And we had volunteers swimming people from the rocks over to the Wibbit. And you run around jumping and, and falling off and taking uh, boat rides from the Wibbit. So Cleans and I paddled over there. And what I loved is as you got close, you could just hear, sort of hear the, the, the squeals and the laughs. And it was just a real blessing because I know that many of the people who were there for the first time, they'd never been in such a beautiful place. They'd never maybe played in such a free uh, society and environment. And, you know, especially for, for the women who maybe most had never swam. Just the freedom of just joy. So I think that was, it did a lot of healing just for a lot of people, just the joy. Uh, I, there's one more, a couple more pictures there. On the last night, we gathered in, in the hall and we just sort of were telling stories. Like, what was a blessing to you? What was joyful? So we heard a lot about swimming, the Wibbit, uh, people biking for the first time. Uh, and then there's one more picture. So at this, at this evening, I, I felt a, a word that I had to share with the camp. And uh, it's a special place for me. And there's many Arbutus trees. So this is an Arbutus tree, not the exact one at camp. But this tree, uh, growing with such beauty, growing out of the rocks, it's amazing how they grow in, in our BC climate, close to the water, you know, there's almost no soil. And so this tree to me became a symbol that I shared with that group on the last night of resilience. And the phrase that came to me is beauty adapted to hardship. And if one thing that many of these newcomers to me represent is beautiful people adapted to the very, very hard things they've gone through, just like this tree. So I was able to share about that and, and tie it with some words of Jesus. And I don't know, it just felt it landed for me and perhaps for the group. So there's just a, those are just a couple stories uh, from camp. And uh, if I have my way next year on the volunteer team, I'll make sure there's room for many of you to come and enjoy uh, the newcomers camp with us. So as we dive into our look at Jonah chapter 3, I was thinking about stories. And the summer, as Alan has mentioned, uh, it's a great time to, to go camping, to go hiking to sit in a backyard, to gather in a park, and to tell stories, uh, perhaps even tall tales, especially if you're fishing. Let's fish get bigger. So as we're in week three of Jonah, the style of this book of Jonah is like epic storytelling. So I want you to think of Bard on the Beach. Has anyone been to Bard on the Beach? Yeah, so live theater, Bard on the Beach. 
That's uh, with sometimes even with audience participation. We're going to see how that goes this morning. So again, I imagine Jonah being read among the people of Israel around a campfire at night. It only takes about 10 minutes. You could sit and read it and just feel the, the waves of drama through the story. And so it, it is written in a way that would have elicited strong reactions to its original readers because it, it draws in their experiences and moves their emotions. You, you might have people laughing and ooing and maybe cheering or booing as it was read. So before we dive into chapter 3, just a couple reminders of where we've been in Jonah chapter 1 and 2. So yeah, I want you, if you can, let your, let your mind kind of wander with me back back 2,500 years to when this story would have been written. Jonah was likely written in the 5th or 4th century BC uh, to the people, God's people Israel, who have themselves been freshly displaced people and moved back into this land God had given them. They had been cruelly treated by the Babylonians, and, and then now they're, they're back. So that displacement that that these people went through has left a mark on their generation. The, the life that their grandparents had in that homeland is erased. Maybe land that they owned is now gone. There's many other sort of cultures have moved into the land and they're trying to come back and yet they're surrounded by other people and cultures and it's not the kingdom of God with God in charge that they have in mind. So I don't know. Can you relate to Jonah and his people in any way? Are there things in your life, your family, that are not quite as you hope or imagine? Maybe it's career, family, finances. Maybe there's people that really bother you or people that have hurt you. So these are the themes going on in the people listening to this book. So bring, if you have these stories, bring them to mind as you're listening and and just see what God might do in your heart this morning. Because I think when we, when we face troubling times or situations like this, we're tempted to do what Jonah's people were doing. We, we struggle with our anger, our disappointment. We shrink back into us and them thinking, sort of a tribalistic or, or nationalistic. And we see that happening around our land, don't we? We see this is a heart issue. And I think it's, it's fearful self-protection. It's just this thing that humans do. So the book of Jonah is written for a people that are going through stuff like this. And it, it actually, it's written in a way that's full of irony and, and stereotypes. And it really invites you on your own journey. So in chapter 1 of Jonah, we meet the prophet, the man of God. And if I was in, my, in, in a live theater setting... I might say, start by saying something like this. Jonah was a bad prophet. Jonah was so bad. See? Jonah was so bad. He was so bad that he couldn't stand his own God. He, he tried to run away from God on using land and sea from the God that made the land and sea. And he actually wished for his own death by being thrown overboard Rather than obey God's will, he was a lousy prophet. But then in a surprising plot twist, the sailors on the sea are so good. How good were they? Well, these sailors who are supposed to be immoral pagans, when they throw Jonah overboard, they kneel and worship and ask God's forgiveness. So they have these soft 
repentant hearts. They're so good. So then in chapter 2, we heard last week Nathan preaching. We meet this lousy prophet in the belly of the great fish, praying and hoping for a second chance. God, if you'd only save me, then I'll do your work. I could relate. I don't know if any of you have been in situations where you make these kind of pledges to God. And so chapter 2 ends as we open today. Jonah has been vomited out on the beach and he's covered in slimy fish guts, ready to start again. And sometimes when we get our start again moment in life, we might feel a little covered in slimy fish guts as we get going. So let me dive in. We're going to read chapter 3. It'll be on the screen if if you want to read along. Chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed, and the word of the Lord, and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, Put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is then the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from the evil ways, he relented and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. Let me just pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this holy word, this, this amazingly written, scripted uh, narrative. Would you use it to bless us this morning as we think about our lives and our hearts and turning to you? In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are in Jonah 3, and as it opens, we see in his second chance, he gets this call again, and it's very similar to the call in chapter 1. It's a bit of an echo. And God says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So that was his assignment. So I don't know about you, but I think we get a little suspicious when we read in the Bible, especially Old Testament, this, this pronouncements of, of judgment and, and proclamations. We, our minds sort of reach for the cancel or the, the edit button. So we might ask, what's with Nineveh that God would, would want to judge it and, and that, that would cause Jonah to run away rather than going to preach there, to seek his own death rather than to work with God? So let me tell you, Nineveh was so bad. There you go. It was so bad that in, in the time of ancient Israel, it was this empire that lasted for about 300 years, from, from 900 to 600 BC. And historians tell us 
that Assyria was, maybe of all time, the baddest, biggest, baddest empire up in the world. The, a quote they read is, They grew through warfare, aided by new technologies such as iron weapons, and they were notorious for widespread use of torture. So even countries today, apparently, who want to take land that's not theirs, they still study uh, the uh, tactics of the Assyrians. So as Jonah's audience is listening to this book, an example on their minds from the stories of their past is sort of narrated in part in 2 Kings chapter 18. So there's a bit of a slide there. When the Assyrians uh, at that time defeated the Israeli city of Lachish. So this, this mural you're seeing, it, it tells the gory details of the battle of, of the Ninevites against the Israeli city. And it was preserved on a stone mural in, in the halls of the great kings of Nineveh. And now it's, it's in a British museum. So these ancient battles were horrible. They would roll siege ramps up to the wall and, and keep the city captive and starving for months. And those they did capture, what this charming mural shows, that they would skin people alive, impale them on posts, and put those posts around the city to terrorize those inside the city. Hey, this is what's coming. You're finished. So Assyria, you can imagine Israel, the audience, this had happened to their ancestors when they hear the name Assyria, Nineveh. This is how they feel. This is, this is the memories they have. So maybe now, a couple hundred years later, they're listening to Jonah's story, and they're probably thinking of like, yeah, that happened to our ancestors. And what just happened to us with Babylon? You know, we hate our enemies. And we're in this land, and we're surrounded by neighbors, and we don't like them either. And so when they read and hear, like we are, that Jonah was called to go to their enemies with a message of turning, turning to God, you can imagine they would not like it. They would be offended. In fact, it might be like a call today to a a pastor in Ukraine saying, go to that great city of Moscow and preach to Vladimir Putin that he should turn from his sins. Or or for maybe a Christian in Afghanistan, go to the Taliban, speak to them about God and help them turn from their ways. What, What a brutal, what a horrible assignment. And you'd be thinking... Really, God, is, is this? And you might be tempted to run away rather than do God's will. So again, the way Jonah is written and the journey he goes through, it's like a mirror. As we read Jonah, it reads us. And, and God is inviting us to examine our heart as we, as we think of our enemies. And we, we wonder, like Jonah, does, does God love our enemies? And does God love us? So jumping ahead in verse 3, Jonah finally gets to Nineveh. And I I sort of looked on a map, and depending where the great fish spit him up on the beach, he had at least a six-day walk to rub the guts off him and to get thinking about this feeling of going to speak to his enemies. Six days of time to think. So then you might think something great will happen, but his arrival in Nineveh, and the sermon he preaches, it's, it's this anticlimax. It's actually pathetic. So here, here he gets his big second chance. What does he do? But Jonah delivers the weakest, most feeblest sermon in the Bible. In, in the Hebrew language, it's only five words. We read eight words in English. Here it is. Quick sermon. I've got it all memorized. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. 
That's, that's his sermon. What does he give? He gives a time frame, 40 days. And then what? Nineveh overthrown. I mean, that, that, that's quite a sermon. So I imagine two ways this sermon might have been delivered, depending on what's happening in Jonah's heart. First method I, I, I called the, the mumble preach. For 40 more days and you'll be overthrown. You know, just really like lackluster, like just like, I don't like you, I don't care about you, I have reluctant obedience, I do not want to be here. I don't know if that ever happens to you. Maybe the Lord wants you to speak to someone and you don't really get it out. You mumble it out and okay, and, and you wonder, did I obey? Well, then the second method I wonder, it could have been, could have been the opposite. It could have been a rage preach. You can imagine a spittle flying and arms waving and eyes wide and 40 more days and Nineveh overthrown and going around raging in the streets. This is what happens sometimes in my head uh, when I'm driving in traffic in Vancouver. A little bit of rage preaching. And I don't know about you, but I can get so wrapped up in my own hurt, my own, my own selfishness, that rather than being a vessel of God's love, when, when faced with people I don't like, I can act like Jonah. I can even go around, well, let's just say it, I can, I can gossip. I can say, you know, this, they hurt me, they hurt me like this. I can relate to Jonah. So in this, this pathetic five-word sermon, there's, there's so much that's missing. There's no mention of God, for starters. There's no, no details he gives of Nineveh's wickedness. Uh, who will overthrow Nineveh? Will, will it be another nation? Will, will it be fire from heaven? And most importantly, can Nineveh do anything to avert the disaster? All the Old Testament prophets, if they're pronouncing something, they always give like an antidote, you know, turn to God and God will help you. Nothing is there. So the sermon is so pathetic that some scholars say that he's committing some kind of perhaps prophetic sabotage, giving so little info that his enemies can't repent. And I think that could be consistent with the character we see in this book. Though Jonah had recommitted himself to serving God after this near-death experience at sea, you see, his heart still had a problem. His heart hadn't surrendered to God. He had experienced God's unmerited grace, but he doesn't turn and worship God with his heart. In fact, maybe he makes it as difficult as possible for his enemies to find deliverance. Forty days and you're going to be wiped out. That's all he's got. One author said, it's a graceless message delivered by one living in the shadow and experience of grace. Again, a mirror on our human hearts. A mirror on how we might feel and behave when faced with our hurts, our enemies. So I just have a, a little story to tell you about my own life. It's sort of a, an unfinished story. I uh, reluctantly wanted to tell it as I was preparing this message. Okay, God. Uh, God is working on, on my heart. Uh, something needs to change. And it, it has to do with where I live. So for, for a few years now, we, we've lived in a, a home in Richmond. I've mentioned it before. And in this particular home, the, the, the landlord is of another culture. He is originally from India, a Sikh background. And um, him and I are very different. And what I was unaware of when, I, when we moved into the place is there's, well, I, I realized there was some sweets down there, but he cleared them all out for this inspection. And, and who moved back in was his family members from India who'd lived there many years, apparently. 
And so what I found is I'm actually living in a sort of an extension of sort of a, a family extension of his home village in India. And uh, so the older uncle, particularly on the one side, you know, sometimes they would, you know, would you like some tea? So we have tea and they even gave us some gifts one time when they came back from India. They go back and forth. And so I, I can honestly say God has been providing for our needs in this sort of cross-cultural setting that Cleanza and I live in. But by putting in this setting, I, I noticed there's just some things that do rub me the wrong way. And I've noted I've been getting grumpy about this cross-cultural stuff for some time. So you see, we, we've got a shared yard. Fair enough. Uh, and yet, we've also got a shared house with many, many things. So when, when the, the older auntie cooks early, early, early in the morning, it makes our fire alarms go off very early in the morning. How early? How early? 6 a.m. I don't want to be up at 6 with a fire alarm, especially if Cleanza's worked all night as a nurse. Grouchy, right? And the worst of all, the thing that gets me, and don't get me started talking about this, is the way he's got the house set up. There's only one meter. I pay all the utilities. So we got our family and two families. I pay all the utilities. And I've asked. We've gone back and forth. That's probably what makes me the grumpiest. So by our landlord caring for his extended family in the basement, he's, I think, un, uh, unwittingly assumed that I would, of course, just sort of jump on board with, with his uh, cultural views of how I might join in of caring for his family from India. <laughs> so how's my heart doing? Let's, <laughs> let, let's, let's focus. Back to Jonah. Back to Jonah. I'll come back to that in a minute. So in verse 5, the Jonah story is where it turns on a dime and, and where the audience might gasp at what happens next. So he preaches the miserable sermon. Verse 5 says this, The Ninevites believed God, and a fast was proclaimed. All of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. So this, this huge surprise move after a pathetic sermon. <laughs> the people of Nineveh believed God. The enemies of God believed God. And they don't just talk about repentance. They don't just give lip service, like perhaps our friend Jonah. They, they put on sackcloth, and they fast. They, they show with their bodies what they mean with their mouths. And then Jonah, you know, we see that he's only gone partway into the city, you know, in his pathetic attempt, and he didn't even see the king. But somehow, verse 6 tells us that God's message went viral through the people, right up to the king. It says this, When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. So in the biggest surprise yet in the book, the, the top baddie of the, of the world's baddest empire, pathetic sermon, immediately repents. He gets up off his throne not to, to declare war on this miserable prophet, but to take off his robe and sit in the dust. The, the leader of the evil empire takes the lowest place of repentance. And it doesn't, the goodness doesn't stop. You might even say, the king is so good. How good is he? Good is he? The king is so good that he declares this. He says in verse 8, but let people and animals be covered in sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. 
Even the animals are, are commanded to fast. So again, humor in the book of Jonah. You meant to laugh here. So you might say that the king and, and our expectations and Israel's expectations are overthrown. As in the sermon. Let's look at that word that Jonah used. Overthrown. What did he mean by overthrown? And what actually really happened? It's a tricky word in Hebrew because I read that it has two meanings. The first meaning we might assume, and Jonah might assume, it's used in the Bible when it talks of a city being overthrown, like Sodom and Gomorrah uh, destroyed. And it's likely what Jonah was hoping when he preached it at his enemies. You're going to be overthrown. However, the other key meaning of this word is this. It means to turn back, to turn oneself to be changed, overthrown. And isn't this what actually happens? The king shows a sudden and crazy sort of change of heart. And very specifically, he calls on Nineveh to turn from evil ways and to turn towards God. He's acting like the ideal man of God. So Jonah's sermon of being overthrown actually does come true, just not the way our prophet intended and so this idea of, of being overthrown or changed is depicted all through the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. It's what the, the prophets call for but rarely see. It's what Jesus' own ministry was sort of centered on. And in the New Testament, the, over, the word overthrown is repent. And again, we, I don't think we love this word. If, if I, we or began using it, it kind of makes us cringe, repent, because I think we don't understand it. Repent, it's actually, it's an active word, and it, it simply means once admitting wrong, being shown something's wrong, means turning your life in 180 degrees, walking the opposite way from what's wrong. So in Mark's gospel, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he, he's just been baptized, and about his ministry, he says this, the time has come, he said, the kingdom has God has come near, repent and believe in the good news. Be overthrown, turn back, be changed. So right here in Jonah, in this strangely written book, we, we actually see a, an echo of Jesus' gospel right in the Old Testament. Matthew's gospel also refers to the story of Nineveh when Jesus is speaking to some of his enemies. He's being criticized to, by the religious elite in particular. And he says this, he refers back to the Jonah story, and he says the men of Nineveh will stand up in the judgment with this generation, your generation, he says to them, and condemn it. For the people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is talking about himself, of course. So again, how does repentance strike you, strike us this morning? So in our story, it's the, it's the king who gets it, the king who's suddenly looking like the hero in our story. And we know instinctively when someone so evil like this king would, would make such a radical change, that's, that's very good. It's good news. And I love how in verse 9, the, this king who doesn't know God, doesn't know God's character, says this. He says, who knows? God may yet relent. And with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. I love that. Who knows? God may yet relent. So again, perhaps it's coming out of a desperate hopefulness. Hopefulness, 
He doesn't know God, but he, he's hopeful that if there's a good God and he, he'd turn even from serious evil, that God would meet him not evil for evil, but mercy for evil. And of course, that's exactly what happens in, in our final verse, verse 10. When God saw, because God sees, he sees our hearts. When God saw what they did and how they turned from the evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. It's amazing. So again, as I, as I narrated part of my own story that the Lord was rather annoyingly bringing to my mind and my heart in my own little neighborhood, he was speaking to me about, Mike, are you praying for your enemies? Enemies, your, your neighbors? And, and sort of me, probably mumbled a pathetic prayer this last week to try and get myself in the mood. So it was interesting because I haven't been seeing this older couple for, for uh, a couple weeks, several weeks since they returned from India. And suddenly, who do I see this week? I see the uncle and auntie several times, just out in the yard. And suddenly we're bumping in as I'm taking breaks from writing the sermon. Who do I see? I feel the Lord saying, Mike, can you love them even though you feel wronged? So this was on my mind. I was out there watering. He's, he's going through my mind and he's out there. He's invited a guest over. He's having, he's having tea. So I'm watering the raspberries and I was like, okay, God, I, um, I could share some raspberries. So I go in the house, get a bowl and I, big smiles. He's, thank you for the raspberries. So these, these little ways, you know, the, <laughs> pathetic really, but God's working on my heart in these little ways as I go through this sort of frustrating neighborly situation. And what, what happened as I did, again, smiles emerge, this feeling of warmth between us that has been there returns. And, and I sort of wonder, like, have I really been sort of ignoring them and, and sort of giving a bit of cold shoulder? That's, that's not who God's calling me, uh, a follower of Jesus, to be. That's not his message of love for the world. So again, back to this, this king of Nineveh. God has confronted him. And he's, he's, he does it so he can lavish his grace and mercy. So I was thinking about this, this whole transaction, this, this love and this judgment. So I want us to think a little bit about love and judgment. Again, like the word repent, we, do, we don't love the word judgment. And I think it's because we think they're the opposite. But in God's economy, in God's character, love and judgment are actually the same sides uh, or two sides of the same coin of God's love. Because we know that if there is truly evil in the world, and there is truly evil, God would not be good unless he would judge that and determine it's wrong and try to fix it. Am I right? We know that a good God would do that. It would be like us if we're walking near a school park and we see a group of maybe sixth graders surrounding a small child and you know, pushing the child and yelling at him. Would we turn a blind eye and walk away? No. We would determine that's bad and, and we would find a way to get some help. So the loving thing to do is to, is to help expose evil so that love can shine in. So actually the opposite of judgment is apathy, that God would turn a blind eye, that we would turn a blind eye to the suffering around us, that a person would hold a grudge against a neighbor who won't pay the utilities. That's the opposite. So instead, God wants to shine his light of love because he wants better for us. 
if there is no God who can sort of shine that light of goodness, I think there's just no hope in our world. Because when we look at the world, we see what we can do. We see the messes we get in without that outside perspective of change. So again, Jonah, this, this Old Testament, strangely written book, shows us this clear picture of Jesus' gospel. As the king realizes it's wrong and says, who knows, the Lord, if I turn, the Lord may relent. And as we see, the, he does. The king turns and, and the Lord does relent because that's the character of the God of the Bible. Even the Old Testament this is the character of God. So I found an example of that in Psalm 103, one of my favorite psalms, one of the psalms that helped me actually in my life turn my life back to God when I was about 20. Let's read a few verses here. It says this. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. This is God's character. Because you see, love leads to judgment, which can lead to, which always leads to, mercy. It's because God loves us that he would judge what's wrong and lead us and lavish us on his mercy. As people were, I don't know about you, I know about me, but we're continually bent out of shape. We continue to need this reformation into the people God would make us. And it's why, for example, in Jesus' most famous prayer, the Lord's Prayer, there's this line that says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. I mean, this prayer has been used for thousands of years in Christian history. In fact, three times a day, Christians would pray this. And I I believe it would actually be good to get back in that habit because it helps us do what we don't want to do. We don't want to think about forgiveness and repentance, but the Lord knows we need it. The Lord knows it's it's not a, a one and done thing that we or you did sometime back when you turned to the Lord this style, this repentance is something, it's daily, it's weekly. It's as these things come up in our lives and we need to be remade, recreated by our Lord. Philippians 2 tells us about another king. Another king who got up off his throne. The king who wallowed in human life for 33 years. The king who lived as a peasant pushed around by the Roman Empire And then this king who went down into the belly of death for three days, like Jonah, where he absorbed God's own judgment on on himself. But then this king rose from, from death in God's power because God's love is always stronger than death. And of course, this king, as reflected in Jonah, this king is Jesus, who opened the way, God's living way, that any of us, any of the people you know and would tell, that any of us would turn and adopt a soft-hearted posture and just know that God would turn towards us. So if you've, come, if you've come to church for a long time, you've heard people say this a lot. Or maybe you're newer, newer and visiting and you're just hearing this for the first time. So whether a hundred times or, or first times, the Bible wants us to know, I want you to know, that as we turn to the Lord, he turns to us. No matter what our shortcomings, if we're like 
the people of Nineveh or, or just like a regular person, God will relent. He always relents when we have a posture of starting over with him. And it's because of, of Jesus on the cross. That's why we, we put that cross out there every week. Because this, this is our Christian symbol. That, that God relents. So if we're wondering, that thing or that, that situation, will God relent? The answer is always yes. If God calls us to go and speak to someone who, whose life needs God's change and we wonder, will God relent? The answer is always yes. So that, that anger, that misery, that mistrust that we hang on to as I'm experiencing in these, these little annoying ways in my own life, they only hurt us and they can hurt our enemies. And see, that's what God wants to free us from. He doesn't want his people, any of his people, to be, to be burdened and walking around uh, in that shadow. Jesus is the antidote to, to that sort of lack of peace that we struggle with. The final verse for this morning is, again, Old Testament from Isaiah 30, and it says this. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. You see, this, this life of God that he wants for us is full of repentance and rest rather than the anxious sort of anger that we, we tend to get stuck with. And this repentance and rest, it really just, I know you, you would have many of these experiences yourselves. It comes from a, a heart that regularly turns and wants to get cleaned up, get right with him, stay in right relationship with him. And that's actually how I'd like to end today. We're about to turn and have the, the communion meal and uh, there'll be a song playing during communion and then a worship song that follows after communion. And during those songs, I'd like to create a space where we can pray, to, pray together. So you, you might pray alone uh, where you're sitting. You might pray with someone beside you. I'll, I'll be standing back uh, in the back corner and if, if you'd like my help to pray about anything, we'll, we'll lift up our hands and we'll pray to Jesus and, and ask him to relent. And you might even be praying for people that you know that God may be inviting you to speak to so that they can relent, so that they can turn and find this peace that we're speaking about. I'd like to call the, the worship team up. And let me just uh, close us in a prayer before we head into the communion meal. Dear Heavenly Father, dear Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, I thank you for this message this message of, of turning and you relenting, this message of good news, would we receive that as we re receive this communion this morning? In Jesus' name, amen.